Well, happy Mother's Day to all of you mothers who are here and to the families that you have brought with you. It's wonderful to have all of you here this morning. If you happen to be a guest worshiping with us for the first time, why we are in a series called A.D., A New Beginning, and we're taking a look at the first 10 chapters of the book of Acts, and today we're in Acts 5, 6, and 7. Last week, we talked about Ananias and Sapphira, who passed away in the church service because they lied to God and lied to the church, and God was trying to teach His people character matters. Integrity matters. Today we're going to explore a death from a different kind of standpoint. This is the first death in the church that comes from forces outside. It, it, it ushers in a new phase of church history that is still intact even today. It is called Christian martyrdom. Being a Christian, we understand, involves sacrifice. Always has, it always will. And different kinds of sacrifices take place at different times and through different generations and time periods and cultures and the needs that surround the church. But sacrifice remains a core principle of our Christian faith. And, and I suppose, I suppose nobody understands sacrifice any better than a mother does. Mothers know sacrifice. Someone said that the quickest way for a mother to get the attention of her children is to sit down and look comfortable. And if you're a mother, you probably have experienced that. Author Kate Semperi wrote, Before becoming a mother, I had a hundred theories on how to bring up children. Now I have seven children and only one theory. Love them, especially when they least deserve to be loved. That, I believe, is the heart of sacrifice, the power of love. And love for God is the really only genuine motivating factor for us to sacrifice anything in our Christian faith. Now, I don't know about you, but, but I'm here to tell you, I don't like sacrifice, and I don't like suffering, and I don't like those other things. And so, when they come along, we tend as human beings to shy away from them. But some of God's greatest victories in our lives grow out of those periods of sacrifice and suffering. Author Malcolm Gladwell was asked, what is the main thing you want us to take away from your book, David and Goliath? And his, his answer to that interview question was kind of surprising. He said, the greatest thing in the world, the greatest things in the world come from suffering. It ought to give us solace. A lot of what is most beautiful about the world arises from struggle. Wow. Sacrifice and suffering are both met with resistance, and yet they may be the foundation for the best things in life. Occasionally, faith involves the ultimate sacrifice of one's life. We've been tragically and graphically reminded of that in recent days, that in parts of the world, being a Christian really is a death sentence. To die just because you believe and follow Jesus Christ is a pretty hard thing for us to grasp, and yet it's happening still. It will happen, I believe, until the day that Jesus returns to take home the church at the end of time. But the first, the first one to give his life for being a follower of Jesus Christ was a man by the name of Stephen, and it happens in Acts chapter 6 and 7. Let, let, let's begin the story in Acts 6 verse 8. It says, Now Stephen, 
a man full of God's grace and power did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Let me pause here for just a second. You need to know that Stephen is the first person we've seen in the book of Acts besides the apostles who is able to do miraculous signs and, and great things. And so God is really using this man as a leader in the early church. Verse 9 goes on to say, Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking about the, against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen. And then notice this. And they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I don't know exactly what that means. I think perhaps there was this glow about him. Remember when Moses had been on the mountaintop to receive the law and he came down off the mountaintop? The Bible says his face glowed because he'd been in the presence of God. I'm wondering if that's how Stephen's face looked as the Sanhedrin brought him to trial. And you say, well, what could they have been opposed to? He was, he was healing people. He was doing miraculous things. He was being a blessing in the community. Who can be opposed to those things? That's not what they opposed. They were opposed to his popularity and the influence he was having with the people. You see, respect for the, for the message of Christ was rising among the Jews in Jerusalem, and many people were coming to follow Jesus Christ. History tells us that there were probably about 8,000 priests that ministered at the temple in Jerusalem, and then the Bible tells us that a great number of the priests became Christians. Now, if you're a part of the temple leadership, and this is all happening around you, you're beginning to lose control. As Stephen's preaching gained popularity, the Sadducees, who were the ruling class, their importance, their control, their influence began to wane. You see, the opposition wasn't about what was true. It was about who had the power and who had the influence. <clears throat> Earlier in chapter 5, the apostles were thrown into prison to quiet them and bring them into submission. It's a really fascinating story. They're in prison. All, all the 12 are in prison overnight. And in the middle of the night, an angel of God comes to the prison, gets them out. The doors remain locked. The, the guards remain on duty. I don't know how it happened. I don't know whether they were momentarily in some kind of a, of a daze. But the angel gets all 12 of the, of the apostles out of the prison, sends them back to the temple and says, start preaching the message again. So the next morning, here comes the, the elite, the, the, the temple uh, Sanhedrin council, and they are coming to get the apostles out so they could put them on trial, and they get there, and they're not there. They're, the doors are locked. The guards say nobody came in, nobody went out, nobody saw it, but they're gone. Now, now, folks, wouldn't you think that intelligent, respected, learned people looking at this and saying, there's no explanation for this. 
There's no way you're going to get past guards at a prison. Everybody thinking that, and the doors being locked. There's something powerful going on here. Plus, we've seen blind people see. We've seen sick people heal. We saw a lame man that was lame from birth get up and walk and praise God. And maybe, maybe we're butting our heads up against the power of God at work. Maybe we ought to back away and take a look at this thing again because maybe this is God at work. But that never entered their mind. There's an old expression that goes like this. There is none so blind as he who will not see. That's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with people who didn't look for the truth. They didn't care about what was really happening. They just wanted to preserve their power and influence. They didn't want to see the truth. And they're so angry at this point that they have the apostles flogged and said, don't ever preach in the name of Jesus again, which wasn't going to happen. But that's how they were trying to deal with the situation. Now, Stephen enters into that kind of an environment. And, and they are so angry with Stephen, and, and, and he stands up and preaches this powerful sermon, which is recorded in the seventh chapter of the book of Acts. By the way, this is the longest sermon recorded in the Bible. Not as long as the ones I preach, but it is the longest one recorded in, in the book of Acts. Now, the, the, the message Sermon on the Mount was the longest one in the New Testament, but this is the, the longest one recorded in the book of Acts. It's a powerful sermon, and I think it's recorded because of the truth that it bears out. They wanted no part of it. Before Stephen could get to the words in conclusion, they were on their feet and they were ready to get rid of God's spokesman. Here's, here's the way the story ends. Acts 7, verses 54 and following. When they heard this, that's the sermon, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said. I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man by the name of Saul. Okay, don't forget that. This Saul, just a few chapters later, will become the great apostle Paul. This moment had to make an impact on him. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. That's the euphemism for death that we read so often in the Scriptures. He died at that moment simply because he was a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know what gets you about this picture, but I'll tell you what gets me about this picture, and that is here you've got grown men who are learned, educated, respected men who are now holding their ears, yelling at the top of their lungs so they don't hear any more of this sermon, and they rush toward him. Well, what does that remind you of? I would say it reminds you of little children, except that would be an insult to little children in this story. There is something that happens to people when the truth no longer matters, and only self-preservation and my importance among others matters. Do, do you know what is at the core of this opposition? As more and more people became followers of Jesus Christ, this is what we read in Acts chapter 5. It says, Then the high priest and all of his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. Ah, there it is. They were filled with jealousy. 
It is amazing to me what human beings are capable of doing to other human beings when they are dominated by the darkness of sin. Take a look at the progression of everything that happens in these chapters. There is anger, then there's hatred, then there's jealousy, then others are paid to lie, then a mob is stirred up, and, and they refuse to listen, and an innocent man is murdered as a result of all of this. This past Friday marked the 70th anniversary of the end of World War II, the anniversary of the European theater victory. If you've read anything about history in that period of time, then you know horrible atrocities happened at the hands of human beings against other human beings. Things you, things you can't imagine that a human could do to another human. But it's all about conquest and control and power and influence. And when that becomes the driving force of our lives, we'll do anything to preserve that. That's part of the broken human nature. We need to be on our guard when the dark side of human behavior rears its ugly head in our lives. You see, we can, we can look down our nose at what happens here in the book of Acts, but we better, we better be careful unless we've cleaned out all of that darkness in our own lives. You see, your mind is a battleground. Do, do you ever struggle with anger? Do, does hatred Lark, lurk deep in your heart of hearts? When, when something good happens to a friend or a coworker, do you feel jealousy creeping into your response? Do you kind of grit your teeth as you smile or try to smile? Are you ever tempted to lie about someone to make them look bad and make you feel better about your flawed self? Do you ever refuse to listen to the truth because you're more comfortable with your lies? Are you guilty of murdering somebody's reputation through vindictive gossip or killing a really good relationship because you've spread a vicious rumor? Even though you know the rumor's not true, the rumor sounds so believable and it's so easy to spread. But before, before we get too critical of those who stone Stephen, we better take a self-inventory of who we are. Jealousy is fear that we will lose what we have. Envy is wanting what somebody else has. Jealousy is the fear of losing what we already have, the, the, the love of somebody who is close to us or our influence in a community or our power of control over things in our lives. And, and I'm convinced, folks, the only remedy for jealousy is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart. You see, when you love Him and when you put Him first, Jesus said, if you put my kingdom first, I'll take care of all these things. So if, if we really love Him first, if, 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 we, if we really put Him first, He'll take care of all these things. And we won't have to fear losing anything because if you have Jesus, you really have everything you need. The only antidote for jealousy is loving God. I like this quote. Envy leads to jealousy. Jealousy leads to hate. Hate leads to anger. Anger leads to the dark side. Boy, isn't that true? Just like, just like a bunch of dominoes falling over. One leads to the other and it just keeps getting worse. It's an insidious transformation. By the way, you know where that quote comes from? That was from Yoda in Star Wars. 
<laughs> Isn't it a shame when a little make-believe green puppet knows more about how we ought to act than we do sometimes ourselves? We feel contempt for the temple leaders, but we are no better when we embrace a jealous spirit, hateful attitude, vindictive gossip, and contemptuous lies. Now, would you please take note of this? That described the opposition to the church. That did not describe the church itself. I want to be aligned with what the church wants us to be, what God wants us to be. You see, the week before Ananias and Sapphira had died, the church knew how they were to live from this standpoint on. We need to learn the same thing. Now, here's the other thing. You know, that, that's kind of heavy stuff, but there is a positive side to this story. There are lessons to be gained from Stephen's example. In learning how he died for his faith in Jesus Christ, we learn how to live for Jesus Christ. Now, like our deacons here, and I don't know if you know our deacons here or not. I hope you get acquainted with our, the, the folks that serve as deacons here. These guys are each attached to one of the widows or the widowers in our church or somebody that has a special need, and they do all kinds of terrific ministry and service to these people who have needs in their lives. And, uh, and like, like those who serve as deacons in this church, Stephen was one of the first seven deacons in the early church. You can read more about those details in Acts chapter 6. But let me describe how the Bible characterizes Stephen's integrity. The key phrase, full of, it's used several times of Stephen. He was full of. It's a phrase that means controlled by. When we say somebody is, um, a young man is full of uh, mischief, we're basically saying he's controlled by mischievous behavior. Stephen, on the other hand, is described as being full of the Spirit, full of power, full of faith, full of grace, full of wisdom, full of forgiveness. Wow, folks. But wouldn't you like to have that carved on your tombstone when you die? Full of grace, full of wisdom, full of power, full of forgiveness, full of God's Spirit. Wouldn't you like somebody to say when you're gone, we're going to miss that person. Look at all they brought to the kingdom of God. Look at the difference they made in this community because of the way they live. What a contrast to those who opposed him. Who, who would you rather have for a neighbor? Someone who is full of anger, hatred, jealousy, deceit, and vindictive actions, or someone who is full of the Spirit, power, faith, wisdom, grace, and forgiveness? <laughs> it's a no-brainer, isn't it? I, I guess the better question is, what kind of a neighbor are you? To the people who live on the same street, to the people who work in the office next to you, to the people that live under the same roof where you live. Are you more like Stephen? Are you more like the Sadducees? You see, God has called us to be a people that stand in contrast to the dark side of this world. As Stephen died, he caught a glimpse of Jesus standing at the right hand of God. When, when Jesus had ascended after his uh, resurrection, after those 40 days that he spent here, the Bible said he sat down at the right hand of God as if to say all of the things that can be done to save humanity have now been done. But when Stephen looks up, he sees heaven open. He says, oh, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Boy, this made the leaders mad, but what a picture. Jesus stands up to welcome home this first of Christian martyrs. We are blessed, folks, I believe, to live in a land of freedom, which I think sometimes makes it too easy for us to take our faith for granted. If we aren't careful, we can be sloppy in our spiritual walk and we can be too casual in our commitment to Christ when it's real easy 
But, but I think God wants us to live with the same intensity as Stephen. I, I think God wants us to be ready to die just as Stephen was ready to die. Now, I'm not suggesting we desire that. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not wanting to die. I, I just want my faith to be ready to do that should the time come. I want your faith to be ready to do that should that time come. But what if this was your last day? What if you knew that by the end of this Sunday, your life would be over here? What would you do differently? What kind of an impact would you leave behind? What would people be able to say at the end of this day about you and your reflection of Jesus Christ and your service in His kingdom? I want us to seize every opportunity that is ahead to make a positive difference. President Ronald Reagan once asked the pilot of Air Force One why he tried to land so close to the beginning of the runway. The pilot smiled and explained, he said, Mr. President, Mr. President, all pilots know that you can't use the runway that's behind you. It's true. You can't use the opportunities that are behind you either. We only have today and what is yet ahead. All the opportunities that you and I have missed in the past, they're gone. They're not coming back. We only have today and what is ahead. So let's, let's land it as close to the beginning of the opportunity as we can. I mean, we hear a lot of tough things about the church today. You don't have to read much. You don't have to listen much to hear some negative things about the church. Things like, of this newest generation, less than 15% attend worship and church regularly. Or one out of every six Christians, one out of every six never gives a penny to the work of the church, period. Or the one that's been true for a long time, 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. Or the median average adult attendance per church service in America is currently only 75. Now, we could go on with those kinds of things and, and feel depressed. There are tough things about church. I don't want you to focus on the tough things. I want you to see the good things. I want you to see why Stephen was willing to live and die for the Lord's church and why we ought to be willing to live and, if need be, die for the Lord's church. Here's what you need to remember. God has no other plan for the advancement of the gospel. Jesus said not even death or the grave or hell itself will overcome the church. This is my only plan. And the church is going to have to be here to the end of time making a difference. But here's the good news, folks. Hundreds, hundreds of new congregations are started every year here in America, and thousands are springing up around the world every year. Today, there are some of the largest churches we've ever seen in modern history. Across the planet, followers of Jesus are increasing by more than 80,000 per day, and 510 new churches begin globally every day. According to Barna Research, 78% of Americans believe that the presence of a church in their community is positive. 78%, only 5%, view the church as a negative aspect of a community. What's more, believers in the church make the greatest difference in times of crisis. They are the most generous with benevolent giving, the most accepting of other people, the most encouraging to those who are struggling. Why? Because God didn't create a sterile institution in the church or a social club with membership dues or a civic organization that wears funny hats. God created a living, breathing, relational organism. 
It was designed and created by God for us, built up through us, and destined to be shared among us. It is not exclusive. The church is inclusive. Whosoever will may come. It serves a perfect Lord, but the church itself is not a perfect place so that all of us can feel welcome here. It has the grandest purpose in the world to tell other people about grace and forgiveness and hope in Jesus Christ. It does what the United Nations cannot do. It makes believers from every nation and culture truly one people. It does what civil rights legislation struggles to do. It makes believers of every race and color truly equal together. Where else can you turn to find genuine forgiveness and acceptance? Where else can you go for a reason that is worth living for and dying for? And what purpose is greater than knowing the grace, forgiveness, and hope of heaven in Jesus Christ? If you think the church's best days are behind us, then you're going to miss the greatest adventure in history yet. Because I don't think God is finished with the church yet, and I think what lies ahead is even more dynamic, which means we need to seize every opportunity and land as close to the beginning of that opportunity as possible. I'm always inspired when I revisit the story of Jim Elliott, Ed McCulley, Roger Yodarian, Pete Fleming, and Nate Saint, along with their families who went to South America, to Ecuador, to reach the Aka Indians, a godless, cannibalistic tribe of people, they all died. They were all massacred by the Akas before they could reach them with the gospel. But Elizabeth Elliot, Jim's wife, stayed on, and later Steve Saint, Nate's son, returned, and many, many of those tribe became followers of Jesus Christ. Before Jim Elliot died, he wrote these words in his journal. I seek not a long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. Jim and the others died in 1956. Jim was only 28 years old. But he lived a full life because of what he accomplished even through his death. You see, through their deaths, a godless people found grace, hope, and salvation in Jesus Christ. <laughs> what a way to spend and give your life. I, I want us as a congregation to live like Stephen. I want us with a passion to desire out of God a full life, no matter how long we're here. By the way, do you know where, where we get the name Stephen? Do you know the background of the word Stephen? In the Greek language, there are two words for crown. Both of these appear in the New Testament. The first one is the, the Greek word diademos, which is diadem in, in the English. It, it describes a royal crown, and it is the crown that is inherited. Only a few, if you're born of royal blood, are you in line for the diadem. But the second word, that is translated crown in the scriptures is the word Stephanos, from which we get the word Stephen. It is the victor's crown. And it is the crown that is given to the victor of any game. It is the crown that is given to every Christian who finishes the race faithfully. 
Jesus said in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the Stephanos, the crown of life. That's our goal. I think Malcolm Gladwell was right. Sometimes the greatest things in the world come from suffering and sacrifice. Let us be a church in the spirit of Stephen.